Those of you who are going to slip out for junior church, my wife will meet you at the back door. To get qualified, you have to be under 12 years of age to do that. For those of you who are looking like it was going to be an opportunity to run, you can't do that. You have to stick with me. John chapter 5, if you have your Bible. I hope you have it, and if you don't, you can use one out of the pew in front of you. But I hope that you'll take it, read it, and note with us. We believe we are, and we profess to be a Bible-believing church. And in doing that, we want you to know and be sure that what we say is from God's Word. If it comes from God's Word, we believe it, we accept it, and we try to practice it. If it's just an opinion, everybody's got one. So let's make sure that what we say and what we have to say is from God's Word. Hope you'll be back with us for tonight's service. I'll be preaching. And uh, that uh, message that we started some weeks ago on the uh, Christless Christianity, that was the first part. Tonight we finished that sermon on part number two. And so if you can join us at 6 o'clock, that would be good. The ushers meeting is at 5.30 in the building next door. And then uh, choir practice begins at 5 uh, nursing home services taught me up there at 2 o'clock at Christina House, and so the nursing home service, so a full scale of a schedule for the rest of the day, and I hope you'll be praying for all the folks who participate in the ministry. John chapter 5, and the Bible says in John 5 at verse 33, John 5 in verse 33, he said, Ye sent unto John, and he bare witness unto the truth. But I receive not testimony from man, but these things I say that you might be saved. He, speaking of John the Baptist, was a burning and shining light. And ye were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. You may have heard and may have been taught, even as I was, what was called and referred to as the five arguments that uh, point out the Christian belief in God as being in perfect, consistent harmony with the world about us. It's the argument that's often done in a, a class on science. If you ever had one, and I'm talking from a standpoint of a Christian teacher who would tell you about it, you would heard these. But uh, uh, this comes from my notes and um, of many years past. But uh, uh, the argument goes like this. It is observed that things are moving. Our world is dynamic. Things are in a constant state of flux. How is it that nature is in motion? Things don't just move by themselves. They are moved by something else. Imagine one of those displays of dominoes toppling each other down. Each one is caused for fall by the motion of the previous domino. But when we trace the domino effect back to its source, we discover a hand topple the first domino. This was the argument. And there are a whole series of causes of motion lying behind the world. Unless there is an infinite number of these causes, then there must be a single cause right at the origin of the series. From this original cause, all other motion is ultimately derived. The original cause, this unmoved mover, is God himself. Secondly, the second way is based on the existence of of cause and effect in the world. Reasoning as we do in relation to motion, all effects may be traced to an original cause, which is God himself. The third way is not so immediately obvious. It is noted that the world contains beings such as ourselves, which aren't there by necessity. This is in distinct contrast to God who is a necessary being. 
The fact that we are here demands an explanation. One being is brought into existence by another being which already exists, and when we trace this series of causes back to the original cause, it can only be someone whose existence is in itself necessary. In other words, it's traced back to God. The fourth way, or the fourth argument, is simply that human values such as honesty, goodness, and dignity must emerge from something which is in itself true and good and noble. The origin of each of these is God, who is their original cause. And number five in the argument, the list of arguments, the fifth way is the argument from design. In the same way that when you arrive home and find the table set for a meal, you recognize that the silverware and china have not arrived by chance, but by design. So too, in the natural order and ordering of our world, it is thereby that we say, we see the hand of God. So all those arguments, in fact, no one have said what we always and have believed, and that is, we've all known all along that creation, God's work in creating the world and all that in it is, is like a sign. It's like a sign that's on the side of the road and points in a certain direction. And that's what creation is. It's a sign giving direction to people who are looking and pointing away from itself to its creator. And this is an important point. You see, creation was never intended to have you embrace a tree. You don't need to go hug trees. It should cause you to go hug the Christ of creation. That's what it was intended to do. It was not intended for you to go out and be, oh, ooh, ah, about creation. It was supposed you to go out and say, ooh, what a wonderful God we got. That's what it was intended to do. It was a sign that said, you see the Creator? You see all this stuff that He did and all the multicolors that He makes and all the wonder of His grace? Look at all this. Boy, isn't this amazing? But man goes around saying, well, look, don't hurt the tree because the tree is another one of us. And he puts his arms around that thing and kisses the bark. Now, you'll forgive me. That just ain't smart. It just ain't smart. That's not what creation was all about. Creation was to point to the Creator, and therefore, because creation is a sign, it fits into John chapter 5 as a witness. It's a witness to Jesus Christ. And remember, Jesus Christ is the Creator. John chapter 1 established that a long time back, five chapters back, in fact. Jesus Christ was in the beginning, and all things exist because of Him and the work He did. Jesus Christ is the Creator, and the consequence of that has ramifications down to this very moment. In fact, you should understand because Christ is the Creator, that's why government schools would not allow creationism to be singularly taught in the school. You see, it's not a matter of talking evolution, creation. It's a matter that Jesus Christ is a tie to creation. And the devil ain't going to stand by anywhere and let Jesus Christ take center stage without a fuss. And that's exactly why you can't have that taught in the schools, singularly. Oh, they might be some classroom that's a little more maverick and say, okay, I tell you what, we'll give you two minutes to give a creationist position, and we'll give you 300 days to talk about evolution. You know, we've been there. We've been in those cases. We know what that's like. But the fact of the matter is the same is true not only about creationism, but it's also true about the witness of Scripture. Even in John chapter 5, this very text of which we preach today, down further in the text, 
In verse number 39 it says, John 5:39, Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify me. It's another reason why you can't read the Scriptures in the school. Because that's Jesus Christ, see? Jesus Christ is what the Scriptures are all about in witness. As surely as creation is about the Creator, who is Jesus Christ, and Scriptures all point and focus upon the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can't have either one of those in school. Because government just just, oh, just goes nuts when you, you put Jesus Christ out there. Now you can talk about God in the abstract. You know, God in the abstract. Uh, you can you can just, in fact, you can call God like uh, John Denver called God. You know, he is the tree. God is the tree. God is the rock. You know, that's pantheism. Everything is God and God is everything. And that'll fly. Oh, yeah, they'll let you do that. That's no problem. But when you say, no, 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 Jesus Christ is the creator, then they go nuts and break out in hives. They can't handle that. And you can't, and may I say, it's not just they can't handle that. It's just almost anywhere in the world. When you start talking about the subject matter of, of creation or the scriptures or whatever, the moment you bring up Jesus Christ, it's as if somebody turned the fader off. They won't listen anymore. Because the issue in this world is not God. The issue in this world is Jesus Christ, who we know to be God, but they don't. If they knew that Jesus Christ were God they probably wouldn't even use the word God in public. That would probably sink that ship just like it sunk the others. And this issue of sin, for instance, not only the creation story and not only the scriptures that testify of Jesus Christ, but the issue of sin for which Christ came into the world to die, sin has in general been defined as the lack of conformity to the law of God. Then knowing that, we know also it's not without significance that the very standard by which every life must be judged or tested, which is Jesus Christ and the Holy Scripture, is forbidden in classrooms of education at all level. It's forbidden in courtrooms of all law. It is forbidden in the corridors of power across our country. And then we have the naivety or the audacity to wonder why everything is going wrong. Our society has ignored the witness of God of the heavens and is paying a fatal price for it. And man doesn't seem to understand that. You can't keep cutting God out, and you can't cut Jesus Christ no slack in regard to who He is, what He's came to do, and then think everything's going to roll like a wheel. It just does not work that way. Our text in John chapter 5 shows us the Lord introducing another witness today to who He is and what He came to do. Last week's message, as you recall, in verse 32, was the witness of God the Father. Today we have and move from a divine witness unto a human one. Look at John chapter 5 and look at verse number 33. That's where we'll focus our attention. Verse 33, 34, and 35 today. Verse 33 says, Ye sent unto John, and he bare witness unto the truth. That's a specific reference back over to John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, in verse number 19, here's what the Bible said there. And this is the record of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? Or in our language, who in the world are you? Verse 20, And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Verse 21, John chapter 1, they asked him, What then art thou, Elijah? And he saith, I am not. Art thou that prophet? 
And he answered, No. Verse 22, Then said they unto him, Who art thou? That we may give an answer to them that sent us, What sayest thou of thyself? Verse 23, He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. That's an interesting thing because in that text of Scripture, the whole point is that uh, when John came on the scene and started talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, boy, he raised all kinds of questions. Same way it is today. You talk about God all you want to, but you start talking about Jesus Christ and you'll raise eyebrows. They'll say, well, you know, I don't know about this Jesus Christ guy. That's, I think he was a nice guy. I think he was a decent teacher, uh, but I don't know much more than that about him. Well, John comes along and starts talking about this Jesus, this Messiah, and boy, did the people in the religious community get all shook up. And so they sent out a delegation, and they said, we want to know who you are, we want to know what you represent, we want to know what's going on. There are no two ways about it. John the Baptist was a unique person of the Scripture, in fact, one that you should deeply, deeply appreciate. And it's important to note that John the Baptist came on the scene as, in fact, his whole job was a witness. We think of being a witness for Christ as being some subservient kind of low mentality job. John the Baptist came into this world to be one. Back over in John chapter 1, verse number 6 says this, There was a man sent from God whose name was John, and the same came for a witness to bear witness of the light, that's Jesus Christ, that all men through him, that's him the light, might believe. That text of Scripture is simply saying John was acknowledging my job in coming into this world was to bear witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me tell you something. If you know Jesus Christ as Savior, you bear no greater responsibility and no greater burden than to cast a shadow of influence for Christ and as a witness on the people over whom God has given you some impact. In fact... I don't care what title you put to it, if you do not, in your position as a believer, introduce witness to those people in your circle of, of impact, if you do not share the gospel with them, you have failed miserably. I don't care what else you do to them. You can, you can build them a mansion in the country with a 20-acre pond and multiple acres of woods and make it the most beautiful place anybody could ever have and turn the thing over as a deed to them and not witness to them about the goodness, the grace, and the salvation that's in Christ and you are a flunky as far as spirituality is concerned. It doesn't matter what else you do. If you have a position of influence as a believer, your greatest responsibility is to tell them about Jesus Christ. You can miss up on everything else. But if you miss up on that, it's like having a lifeline to someone who's choking to death for air, and you hold that hose through which air passes, and you have crimped it, and they can't get their breath. No matter what else you do, no matter what effort you put forth as kindness, you are exceedingly unkind to have within your hands the hope of salvation, at least in witnessing to a person, and you keep it to yourself. That's unconscionable. That's Im impossible for me to comprehend as why a person would do that. So if you know someone who has not saved and you know Christ as your Savior and have a biblical basis for it, 
then your responsibility is to search out your circle and make dead sure that everybody in that circle at least has a witness of who Jesus Christ is, why he came, and why it is necessary that he die on the cross of Calvary. Well, I'm telling you, John the Baptist was that guy. God the Father said to John one day, he said, John, I want you to be my witness. And by the way, it, it, it were, it's worthy of us going back. This is one of my favorite characters in the Bible, so I hope you'll indulge me. Go back, if you would, from John chapter 5 to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 is John's story, his beginning. In, John, or in Luke chapter 1, look if you would, if, well, let's just begin at the beginning. Look at verse number 5. Luke chapter 1, verse number 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zechariah of the course of Abijah, and his wife of his daughters of Aaron. That is, his wife was of the daughters of Aaron. Uh, Aaron, of course, was a Levite and the priestly tribe, and her name was Elizabeth. Verse number 6 says, And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord. Uh, parents, you ought to take that verse and memorize it and practice it and make it to be the model of your life. They were both righteous before God. Not before men. They didn't, they didn't act one way in public and one way in private. They were both righteous before God. Verse number 6, walking in all the commandments. They didn't just pick and choose the ones that were easy and leave off the ones that were hard. They walked in all the commandments and the ordinances of God, and they did it blamelessly. Nobody could accuse them of making a, 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 an attempt, but, you know, cutting corners, you know, not doing the whole thing, but doing a little bit of the thing. The word blameless means there was no charges that could be brought against them concerning this standard. You talk about a standard... You talk about good parents. You talk about good role models. You talk about somebody that set the bar high. Zechariah and Elizabeth set the bar high. Verse number 7. Verse 7 says, And they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren, they both were now well stricken in years. Now skip down to verse 11. In verse 11, And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Uh, Zechariah has gone inside the temple. He is uh, doing the ministry. He's inside there, and there's an angel shows up. Verse 12, When Zechariah saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. Verse 13, But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zechariah, for my, thy prayer is heard. Now, I've been praying for 40 years. I've been, uh, this fall, I'll be saved 50 years. Been preaching for 42. What's interesting about that, I have never had an angel show up and tell me what my prayer was. No angel ever walked up and said, Pastor Henry, you know that prayer you prayed last week? I've come to make good on it. Never had one. So if you haven't had an angel show up and tell you your prayer is about to be answered, uh, don't feel bad. You and I in the same club. The problem is, in this case, Zachariah was in a unique club, and for some reason and some cause... The Bible says, the angel tells him, your prayer is heard. Thy wife, Elizabeth, shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. Skip to verse 15. And he says, for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. That's amazing. Verse 16. And many of the children of Israel shall be he turned to the Lord their God. Skip down to verse 20. And behold, thou shalt, thou shalt be dumb and not be able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed because thou believest not my words which thou or which shall be fulfilled in their season. Skip down now from verse 20 to verse 59. 
59 of Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, verse number 59, it says, And it came to pass that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. They called him Zechariah after the name of his father. His mother answered and said, Not so, but he shall be called John. Now you ought to understand, Zechariah has not spoken. So who told Elizabeth his name should be John? Zechariah sure didn't. And I don't think he wrote it down because in the context, look further. And he answered, his mother answered and said, Not so, but he should be called John. In verse 61, they said unto her, There is none of thy kindred that is called by this name. And they made him made signs to his father. I mean, they were, they were doing sign language back in Luke chapter 1. And how would he have him called? In verse 63, he asked for a writing tablet or table and wrote, saying, His name is John. And they marveled all. And his mouth was opened immediately. That means that Zechariah could speak. His tongue was loose and he spake. And the first things out of his mouth was he praised God. Verse number 65. Fear came on all that dwelt round about them. And all these sayings were noised abroad throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all they that heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, What manner of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Well, you talk about an amazing story. That always is one of my favorite in the whole Bible. And it's a favorite because it was about a family, a godly family, a mom and dad who were godly people. By the way, uh, we didn't point it out in the text, but this is an interesting thing, that all three of the people in this family, including, including, including the baby just born, were all filled with the Spirit. You go back and read Luke 1, and you see it says that Zechariah is filled with the Spirit. It says Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit. And it says that John was filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. Now let me tell you, you talk about a heaven-on-earth home, that would be a heaven-on-earth home. Mom is filled with the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit. Dad is filled with the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit. And John the Baptist, who is just the baby, born into this world. Can you imagine? I mean, the baby never crying like he's upset and mad and angry. I mean, I'm not sure it goes that far, but the fact of the matter is, the point is it means from the very beginning he was under God's Spirit control. A whole family under the control of God. It's no wonder then that you come to John chapter 5 and it is John the Baptist who is this special, unique human being who will give testimony concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know of anyone who's better fitted. Now, I know societal-wise, you know, a few people wrinkled their nose at him. For instance, uh, I would uh, remind you that in uh, Matthew chapter number 3, in Matthew chapter number 3, there's this, uh, this passage. Let me, in fact, turn to it. Look at Matthew chapter 3. Uh, this was his dress code. You remember that? When I was a kid in Sunday school, I always, uh, I'd say, yuck, when the teacher read this. But it's nonetheless what he, what he wore and what he ate. Matthew chapter 3, it says in Matthew 3 and verse number 4, the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Now, I don't know about you, but that just about turns my thoughts away from lunch. Locusts and wild honey. I can just about taste the wings right now, can't you? Fluttering around in your mouth. And honey won't do a whole lot to change it. 
the fact of the matter is his diet and his dress code was weird. And I'm sure people looked at him and said, boy, this is one more weird character. What it was, it wasn't a matter that he was trying to be a standout. He did not try to make himself uh, visible in the focus. That's not the ideal at all. This is a guy who lived in the wilderness. This is a guy who didn't even come into the city except under the circumstances whereby the Scripture says that there's a necessity, as it were, to give and bear public witness. He stayed out there alone, and, and he ate the things that he could get his hands on. So John was a great witness, even a model of our witnessing, as it were, to a point. And, uh, but one of the re- reasons that he's brought up here is because the people looked upon him as a prophet. In fact, in some degree, he was the last prophet you ever hear about. Interesting, there are several verses of Scripture. One of them is in John, or Luke 1 and 17. Luke 1, 17 says, He shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And because of that, the Bible indicates that the people reverenced John and looked upon him as being a unique kind of fellow. They didn't look at him as just another preacher, just another priest. He was different. And then the people respected that and respected it to a point that... Uh, when the religious leaders were going to do something against John, they feared because the people counted him as such a prophet that the people would turn on those who were going to do the harm. And so they wouldn't do it to John. They were very careful what they did, what they said about John. Now go back to John chapter 5 and look at verse number 33. John chapter 5, verse number 33. The Bible says, in verse 33 of John 5, Ye sent unto John, and he bare witness unto the truth. Interesting in that context, in that reference here, the very purpose of John the Baptist's ministry was to make straight the way of the Lord. And that back over in John chapter 1, it said it was to be a voice and he was to make a way or make the way straight for the Lord. Makes it means makes it acceptable where people understand what it is that Christ came to do and what his purposes are. That's what it's talking about in John chapter 1. What's interesting too is when uh, that was his job, to be the witness, to be the voice, to be the one that prepared the way. And then there also was this assignment. John chapter 1 speaks of it. In fact, listen to this. John chapter 1 verse number 29 says, He was to be able to identify the Messiah. He wasn't only just to talk about Him and to explain when He came, what He do. He was supposed to be able to put His finger on Him and say, That's Him. So in John chapter 1 verse number 29, the Bible says this, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. The same thing in verse 31. He says, And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. The ideal, John says, for me to come on the scene. The whole idea is so I can identify Jesus Christ. I can point to him and say, That's him. You know this guy I've been preaching about? That's him. This guy that has come to seek and to save that which is lost, that's him. This guy that's going to come and die on the cross for the sins of our nation, that's him. And that's John's job. Everywhere he went, his idea was to point to the Lord Jesus Christ as to be the one. By the way, every Sunday school teacher, every pastor, preacher in this church, every one of us, our primary job is to do much of what John's was, and that is the groundwork, to lay the groundwork, and that is to help people understand who Jesus Christ is and then point people to Jesus Christ for what he can do for them. That's our primary work. And the fact of the matter is, that's exactly what John was doing. What's interesting, too, and this always ought to be an important thing, is when Jesus Christ speaks about somebody, 
And when he speaks about them, uh, it's as good as gold. Listen to what he said about John. In Matthew chapter 11 and 11a, that's the first half of the verse, he says, Verily I say unto you, among them, among them that are born of women. How many of you think that will take in? I think that takes in to everybody. I believe I'm right. So when he said this, he was saying of everybody that's born of women. He said, and I quote, There hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. The Lord day, on the day the Lord said that, there was nobody greater than John the Baptist. Now, to have the Lord say that about you, um, I, I'm... I'm I must tell you, that's about as high an endorsement as is possible to get. Of all the people born, there hath not arisen one that is greater than this John the Baptist, who in John chapter 5 is going to give witness of Jesus Christ. Back to John chapter 5 and look at now at verse 34. John 5.34 says, But I receive not the testimony from man. What? Wait a minute, we just did all this and spent all this time telling you what a great man this guy was and how wonderful he was and, and what abilities he had, how, what kind of great family he came from. And then the Lord Jesus Christ turns to us and says, I'm not going to depend on a man's word. It's as if to say, this is really quite amazing. Our Lord shifts the whole point here. This whole text then changes direction. Because in John chapter 5, verse number 34, look at the whole verse. But I receive not testimony from man, but these things I say, telling them about John, for what reason? Tell me. That you might be saved. Our Lord is saying, look, John's witness is not really to vindicate who I am. John's witness is to point you to me as your only hope of salvation. And that's an amazing thing. You know, here we start out this passage and we're talking about the witnesses for Christ. We have God the Father. And by the way, that's an interesting thing. It's amazing here that Jesus is saying, in effect, I'm not appealing to John's witness in confirmation of my being God. Um, the, the Heavenly Father's already established that. God the Father did a sufficient job of establishing that in the witness we gave before. But the Jews needed John's witness with the purpose that they might come to believe on Christ for salvation from their sins. And that's what that verse of Scripture is all about. Jesus is saying this, there's not a man anywhere, and even if you take the greatest man who ever lived, which is John the Baptist on this day, if you take that guy, it's still a fact that he really can't bear witness of me. He can't, uh, he can't prove anything about me. Because he's a human being. And everything about him is sort of tainted by him being a human being. And so what we find out in this text of Scripture, there are three things or three witnesses that are divine. We've already seen God the Father. He's deity of deity. But then we'll see a second thing, which will be the works of the Lord Jesus Christ. Works that were supernatural works. They will testify of me, he says in the text. And then the third thing is the Scriptures. So in this text of Scripture, we have four witnesses, all right, but John the Baptist is really a witness to the Jews concerning Christ, so they, the Jews, will come to salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ 
of which he gives, the Lord Jesus, gives three other witnesses. God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ works of miracles on this earth, and the third thing is the Scriptures themselves. In verse 39, the Scriptures themselves testify of him. And that's what he's going to say. So what he's saying here in John chapter 5 and verse number 34 is I don't need a, a human to do this. Get back to this point. God doesn't need us to be a witness, otherwise nobody in the world will be saved. God doesn't need us. God is pleased to use us. And that's exceedingly important, you understand. He doesn't need you, and He doesn't need me. He can save anybody He wants to in any way He wishes. If He can get donkeys in the Old Testament to talk to men, He could get doves and trees to speak to them today. What he does want and desires is he wants to use us. We are privileged people being saved by the grace of God that God is willing, as it were, again to condescend to take this great treasure in earthen vessels and hand it over to a bunch of people like us and say, go share it with people and watch the transaction of grace that takes place. It just doesn't get any better than that. And consequently, that's exactly what John was in and doing here. Look down at John 5 and look at verse number 35. In John 5, 35, he, John the Baptist, was a burning and shining light. And again, I think the Lord comes back in verse 35 with that statement in order for us to see, or John is actually writing it. And I think John comes back, and don't get confused, this is not John the Baptist writing about John the Baptist. This is John the Gospel writer writing about John the Baptist. They're two different people. Don't, don't miss that. So John the Gospel writer is writing about John the Baptist, and he is saying, even though the Lord Jesus Christ does not need John's testimony to verify him being the Son of God, the Savior of the world, etc., etc., he does use him as a witness to the Jews to point them to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the point of verse 34. Verse 35, though, he comes right back and says, Now this John is important, and he's a burning and shining light. And John, the gospel writer, says, And you fellows were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. There are two things in that text, and you shouldn't miss either one of them. The first one is a tribute. It's a tribute on the part of the Lord Jesus to say about John the Baptist, He is a a burning and shining light. Now let me ask you a very simple question. As a Christian, are you a burning and shining light? Well, you say, well, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know what that means. Well, let me explain to you what that means. The, the ideal of burning in the context carries with it something internal that drives. We would call it passion, or we would call it zeal. It's saying... John the Baptist was passionate, zealous about what he believed. How zealous are you about what you believe? A burning, you know, he had, a, he had this thing, I just, oh, can't, I can't stand to sit on the truth. I've got to do something about it. It's the ideal of, of the truth on fire, and you've got to go tell somebody. So the question is, are you a burning kind of Christian in that context? Even in the second word, the ideal is a shining. The word shining carries with it something that's externally aware of. You're, you're, it's like a light. You can see it outside. So internally, he was zealous and passionate about the Lord Jesus Christ. Outwardly shining, he was, as it were, a person who did not hide his testimony about Christ under a bushel. He was not ashamed 
to be identified with the Lord Jesus Christ anywhere. Think for a moment. Is there any group of people around which you move that you do not dare tell that you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and He belongs to you? Just think for a moment. Are there people? I don't talk about that around. I, I don't know what they think. I'm not sure how they'd react. I'm not sure how they'd receive me, what they'd think of me. I don't tell them. Are you a, a secret saint? You know, one of those people who don't say anything about it and you just you keep it to yourself and, and then you, you disguise it very politically correctly. You say what the pundits say. You say religion is very personal. Well, you've ever heard that? Sure, it's personal. Things that aren't personal aren't very valuable. But if it's personal, oh, it gets valuable. And so we cover our failure to do what we should do by giving a title to it in the context of the pagans that everybody else will accept. That's personal. I, I don't go around asking you what you think, and I don't want you to go around asking me what I think, and I just keep it to myself, and everything's fine. No, 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 no. Let's be honest. You are a coward. See, if you know Christ as Savior, and there are people around whom you have to do, and you will not identify with the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll forgive me, but you're a coward. I mean a coward. And I'll tell you what, I wouldn't want you on my team if we were in a struggle, because you'd be the first guy to exit the door, because when the going gets tough, you'd be hitting the road, and you'd be hitting the road in a hurry. That's what some of those disciples in the early church, you, you know, that guy called Peter, who we always saw, thought about had a foot in the mouth kind of disease. Every time he turned around, he's putting his foot in his mouth. There's a crazy thing about that, that I think that there is a, a group of people who got his same DNA, you know. Deny the Lord on every turn. You see, you don't have to open your mouth to deny the Lord. You just have to be quiet when you should have spoken up. And that's what John was not. Oh, and by the way, it probably... It probably cost him his life. By the way, you see the text in John chapter 5 and verse 35? Notice the second word. What is it? John 5, 35. What's the second word? Was. You know that's past tense? So when John the gospel writer is writing about John the Baptist, he was. I suspect he's in one or two places. He's either in a prison waiting to die, or his head has already been lifted from his shoulders, put on a platter, and handed over. If you remember uh, when Herodias' daughter danced for Herod, and he offered anything she wanted, her mother whispered in her ear and said, you asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter or a charger. And she said, that's what I want. When she danced, Herod, for what seemed to be a noble thing, for the oath's sake, he sent the guards down to the prison and cut John's head off and brought John's head sitting on a platter under a charger and handed it to Herodias' daughter, who in turn turned it over to her mother. You know why he did that? Because Herodias had been, uh, and, and, and the relationship between Herodias and Herod was that Herod had taken this other guy's wife. And so consequently, John had rebuked them for it. And he lost his head because of it. Now you say, well, man, this guy's not smart. He just should have kept his mouth shut and he could have lived a long life. Yeah, he might have lived longer. But he'd have been dead wrong. 
dead wrong. That's why the Bible says of him that he was a burning and shining light. And I suspect because he was reared in the kind of home that he was reared in, that uh, he didn't care if it cost him his life. There's one thing about John you'll notice. He was not an egomaniac. An egomaniac is a person who every time his mouth opens, he speaks of himself. What he's done, where he's accomplished, what he's going to accomplish, how good he is, how great he is, how wonderful he is, what great ministry he's done. Uh, you won't find any of that with John. In fact, when they, uh, they gave John an excellent opportunity, when those Pharisees came on board, you know, in John chapter 1, and they said, Are you Elijah? Are you Elijah? Are you uh, 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 that prophet? Are you? He could have very easily said, You mean you guys don't know? And they said, No, we don't know who you are. And he said, Yeah, I'm one of them. I mean, he could have jumped right into the role and been treated like the, the guy he wasn't, and he could have been just hunky-dory. But you couldn't be that and come from the kind of family he was from. Mother filled with the Spirit, father filled with the Spirit, obeyed all the commandments of God and you, and they did it without blame. And he himself filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. No, you couldn't have been that way. You see, John the Baptist was a burning and shining light, and even if it cost him his life. By the way, about light and the light that he is, the Scriptures make a distinction, and so should we. Let me tell you four things about the light. First off, the word light in the context of here speaking about him is uh, the word luknos. Luknos is, a, is a, in the Greek language is defining a little lamp or a small candle. That's what it's describing. And so it's saying that John was a burning and shining luknos, a small portable lamp or, or candle. There's something about that lamp or candle that you should understand and know. It'll help you understand the bigger picture. This, this light of which he's uh, classified or described as being, is ignited by someone else. The light cannot light itself. And what it is, it means that John was a reflection of a greater light. That's the word and that's the idea used here. That Lucknos is a, is a portable lamp or candle and it gets its light from something else to be carried around to make light for other people. Number two, this light gave off warmth or gave off heat. It was not the cold, dead stuff that the pagan Jews had gotten used to in their ritualistic environment. Number three, this light provided light for those around it. John pointed people to repentance of sin. Sin was darkness. And faith in Jesus Christ. Christ was the true light. The self-existing light, as we call it. And by the way, here's where the dis distinction comes in. The Bible says that Jesus is the light of the world. The Greek word for light is phos. P-H-O-S. That means the uh, essence of light. Everything that light is, Jesus Christ was, phos. It's not luknos. It's not a portable lamp that you carry around and get your light from something else. Phos is self-existing light. And the consequence of that is that that has a profound effect on when Jesus Christ says, I'm the light of the world. In essence, if you want light, you need to come to the source and you can get it. The fourth thing about this light of John's is this light by its very nature burns itself up as it burns itself out. In giving out light, it gives up life. It's like a candle. As it burns and gives off light, it's giving up its life. As John decreased, Christ was to increase. And as you live your life and I live mine for the Lord Jesus Christ, that's exactly the way it should work for us. We should, as it were, 
in giving out the light, we should become less conspicuous and we should know ourselves more conclusively and we should not desire to be the focus. We should make sure our focus is shifted to Him. So with the greater impact He has, the less people should know about us. In our society and especially in the religious circle, it often works the opposite. The greater popularity a man has, the more he desires to be more popular. And the next thing you know, he walks into a trap that the devil sets and he's done. And the consequence here is that John was a faithful, light person. And that is, he knew what he was. And the consequence was, his light came from the Lord Jesus Christ. And he decreased, Christ increased, and he was a happy camper. The lighter part, look at John 5 and verse 35, the last part. Not only was he a burning and shining light... Verse 35 says, and here is not, a re- this is a, a tribute to John, the first half of the verse, and the last half is a rebuke to the Jews. He says, and ye were willing for a season to rejoice in that light. That's to, uh, to make an illustration like when I was growing up as a kid. We used to, uh, we'd have nights where we made, uh, in the summertime especially, and especially in August, uh, we would have, my grandfather grew watermelons, best watermelons in central Tennessee. Oh, great watermelon. Love a watermelon. I love watermelon to this day. Anybody got one? Nobody had one. Uh, watermelon in August from grandfather's was just, boy, that was just about as good as good gets. And consequently, we'd go outside to eat the watermelon. And granddad, had, because we'd done this so frequently and invite the neighbors and everybody in to eat with us, he had actually constructed a long table. And he'd put these watermelons in these ice-cold uh, troughs for the cattle and whatever, and he'd soak them there and put ice on top of them and everything. Oh, they'd be oh, wonderfully cold. And so what would happen on that night, we'd get those things out, and then he'd take a knife, and boy, he'd cut through them. And, and of course, you know if you've ever been around good watermelons, you put your knife into it, you don't use it cut much further. It goes, and it just splits. You know, it's ready to eat, and it's red to the rind. Woo! Just gets great, you know. And so we'd wait, and boy, we couldn't. But then all of a sudden, you notice, because we'd had the lights on, the bugs were just flocking. I mean, everywhere you turn, you're fighting bugs and mosquitoes, you know. They're just all over the place. Like bugs flocked to a light on a hot summer night, no matter what else is going on around them. That's the concept of how these Jews flocked to John. That's the idea. You were willing for a season... To listen to what he said, you 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 gravitated to him. You were there, and and you tolerated what he said. And the effect is, the rebuke is, why didn't you go a step further? Why did you just do that for a season? Why didn't you take to heart what he said and act upon what he was talking about? The problem is, as in most religious circles, when you start tightening the screws of truth, you start losing your crowds. When I was at School in Tennessee Temple, I can recall more than once the president of the school telling us young men, look, you preach the word and leave the increase to the Heavenly Father. Your job is not to rewrite the sermons. Your job is to preach the whole counsel of God and leave it with Him to work out the details. And he would say, don't you ever, don't you ever compromise the message to draw a crowd. And the truth of the matter is, as a young preacher, that soaked into my soul very, very, very much. And consequently, John was made of the same kind of DNA. 
And he wasn't about to change his message. Let me show you two or three things of how they changed and we'll close and you'll be heading, heading home. So listen, and listen quick. Look at Matthew chapter 3. Look at verse number 1 and 2 to begin with. Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 and 2 says this. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Interesting thing here. Uh, this was, uh, there was his, uh, what I call hard-hitting, non-compromising message regarding personal repentance of sin. Then skip down from verse number 2 down to verse number 7. In verse 7 it says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptisms, he said unto them, Note these kind, gracious words. O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Verse number 8, Bring forth therefore fruit meat for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father, for I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid into the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewed down and cast into the fire. This was, uh, there was his hard-hitting, non-compromising message and talking about personal repentance of sin, but here is his stern rebuke of hypocrisy for the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And notice he uses that phrase often and refers to it here in verse 9 where he says, You say within yourself. These guys had talked themselves into being okay, and in effect they were saying we're okay because we have Abraham to our lineage. We have a, a physical connection in the birth of Abraham. We're, we're, we're born through that line. By the way, what John the Baptist could have said, by the way, don't, didn't you read John chapter 3 where the Lord Jesus Christ preached a whole sermon to Nicodemus who was a ruler of the Jews and the whole emphasis of the text of Scripture was the necessity of the new birth. I don't care what physical connections you've got, how important you are, how rich you are. It does not matter. What does matter is a relationship, a spiritual relationship of the new birth to the Lord Jesus Christ. He could have preached that. He didn't. He left it for me to say. Here in John chapter 3, look at verse 11. He says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Then there's this third thing. He not only preached this hard message about repentance of sin, a personal repentance, non-compromising and a hard-hitting kind of sermon. He not only called out to the Pharisees and the Sadducees as rebuking them for their hypocrisy, but he even really insulted the rest of them. And it's in text of verse 11. I remind you that the Jews believed they were already a part of the kingdom, of God's kingdom. Their idea was that they, uh, in, in their ideal of John the Baptist's insistence that they be baptized, the Jews only knew they baptized Gentiles who wanted to join Judaism. And so their idea was that we Jews are already a part of the kingdom of God or God's kingdom. And so what we do is when a Gentile wants to join Judaism, we baptize them. And here John the Baptist is chunking off on the idea that all of you Jews who've repented need to come and I'm going to baptize you. They counted that exceedingly insulting. And uh, every history book in my office that relates to the time would tell you that of all the things John said, this may well have been the most insulting of anything, is to be baptized by John the Baptist. With that kind of preaching, it's no surprise John's popularity bottomed out. And the bottom out of that was like any preacher would. It is true to a point, one sense, that the difference between 
real believers and mere the simple professors of faith is not in how they begin, but how they end. That verse of Scripture in Matthew, He that endureth to the end shall be saved, is not a condition of salvation. It's an evidence of salvation. In continuance, the passage of Scripture, that emphasis is upon it, and it's the same thing the Lord Jesus is addressing with the Jews. You came to John and you liked his message. Why didn't you continue all the way with it? Why didn't you, why didn't you take it to its conclusion? Continuing is a key word of the true Christian, genuine Christian experience. Our Lord speaks of it in John 8. He says, If you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples. These were uh, what we call seasonal disciples here. And I say to you, all these people, when these Jewish people were uh, so excited early on about John's preaching, they were excited because John was telling them the Messiah was coming, a deliverer was coming. The Jews had in their mind part of that was is going to deliver them from the Roman rule. We know that. The Bible emphasizes that. But when Jesus showed up and said he had come to seek and to save that which was lost, and those demanded, he demanded, the repentance of sin and faith in himself, John lost all of his amen corner. That was not the kind of Messiah the world of the Jews wanted and were waiting for. And it's not the kind of Savior this world is looking for. They're looking for a different kind of Jesus, a different kind of Savior. They want one that they can pretty much do what they want and as long as they want and as much as they want, and there'll be no ramifications to it. In truth, the Jews were waiting for a militant Messiah, and they were shocked in their socks or in their sandals by who God the Father had sent. He sent a meek and mild son of a carpenter whose miracles they discounted, whose message they did not believe, whose ministry they denied, and whose methods they despised. That, my friend, is why these people didn't want anything to do with Jesus Christ. And that's also the reason why the Lord Jesus brings these witnesses before us, as he brought God the Father to testify that indeed Jesus was the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and the only Savior of the world. I repeat what I don't often say around here, but I did for a long time, and I probably should repeat it more frequently. The God of Islam is not the God of the Bible. And there are people still in this city, as was reflected just this week. A conversation between some folks and discussion concerning a, a witness that was given. In the context of what was said, the people spoke up and said that uh, they had for a time worked with, stood with, been around an Islamic person. And they came to realize and understand that the God of the Bible, the Savior of the world's Father, was the same as the God of Islam. And when this person heard that, they took exception to it rightly and correctly and said, that's not true. And this person said, but that's the person I've placed my faith in and I'm risking my life that they told me the truth. This Christian said, then you've lost your hope of heaven. They are not the same God. And the Koran itself says they're not the same God. And therefore, this Christian said, I'm surprised that this person who professes to be Islamic would dare tell you that unless they themselves 
are just as ignorant. My friend, I have a copy of the Quran, and I've told you this before, and right in the Quran it says the God of Islam does not have a son. He does not have a son. The God of the Bible had a son. And this God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, sent him to this world. He died on the cross. He took our sins upon himself. That's why salvation, and as we talk about it a bit in the service again tonight from Philippians 2, salvation is not by works. It's by the marvelous grace of God. And in the context of what these people were saying, these people had the idea they trusted the Islamic God, and then what they will do, then what they will do is they'll work very hard to keep it. Salvation from start to finish is of the Lord. It's not of works of righteousness which we have done. It's according to His mercy He saved us. And it's mercy from start to finish. Do you know Christ of the Bible as your personal Savior? Do you understand it's not by what you do and what you did and what you'll try to do? It's by simple childlike faith so that anyone who has a brain between their ears and a conviction of their heart brought and wrought by the Holy Spirit can be saved gloriously for eternity. Are you a born-again believer with Bible credentials to back it up? If not, we'd love to talk to you. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the Holy Scriptures and thank you they pull no punches. They tell us as it is, as it will be, and set it very clearly before us that the only hope we have is in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so today as we finish this message and come to a conclusion and prepare to leave this place and go home, I would ask you to drive the truth of the message of John chapter 5 deep into the hearts of every man, woman, boy, and girl in this building. And no matter how old we are or how young we are, if we understand that we were born sinners and we understand that Christ came into this world to die for our sin and understand that we must and therefore call upon the Lord, ask Him to come into our heart, forgive us of our sin to be our Savior as He's convicted us of this sin that is so heavy to bear, I pray that we might recognize if we've not done that, we need counsel. We need someone to sit down with us and show us from a Bible how we can be sure that Jesus Christ is our Savior, and when we die, as die we shall, we will go to heaven. I pray, Father, you'll work in every heart, every life. For believers here, I pray that you'd give them boldness for their witness, as John was. Even if it costs us something, maybe a friendship, maybe a fellowship, maybe even a position, I pray that we'd be bold to always identify publicly with the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter where we are, what we're doing, with whom we're doing it, we ought to be bold to stand for our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Help us not to be cowardly. Help us to be bold witnesses, as John set such a great example. And Father, I pray today that you'll bring forth fruit that you've ordained for this hour from the truth both embraced, believed, and set out to follow up on, to completely carry it out to its ultimate conclusion. I pray for the grace that is necessary to accomplish that. Bless, I pray, the invitation to your glory and to the good of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us, please? If you need a hymn book, turn to 282. We'll sing the first.